So I wanted to begin this morning as we transition into the sermon by talking about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. The Leaning Tower of Pisa. So uh, how many of you have actually been able to, to make it and to see it in real life? Just show of hands. See many. So I, I have not. So I, I kind of feel like I'm missing out and I feel like I'm speaking a little out of turn uh, since I haven't actually seen the Leaning Tower. I've been able to read about it. I, I've, obviously, I've seen pictures. Um, I, I love all the pictures of people who look like they're trying to like hold up the tower as though it's falling those, every single time, they make, me, they make me giggle. I don't know why. I should probably just get over it. But it is enjoyable to look at all these pictures. So just some interesting things about the Leaning Tower. So the Leaning Tower was actually begun in 1173. 1173, so, so, so quite old, which many of you aren't too surprised by that. Um, however, it wasn't actually finished till about 200 years later. So it was a very slow building project. One might compare it to the roads in Minnesota. Very slow moving building project. Um, it took hundreds of years. And much of that wasn't because it was such a complicated structure to build. Much of it was actually because of political unrest and wars and things like that significantly delayed the process. But in addition to that, and this is interesting, see, I, I had assumed that the reason the, the Leaning Tower is leaning was because more of the age. However, the Leaning Tower actually began to lean only about five years after the initial stages of construction, which at that point in time was still quite short. I think it was only a few stories high at that point, um, which it would continue to go up quite a bit. So, so it began leaning actually fairly early on. So that was another reason for the slow progress because as they continued to build upon it, they tried to find new ways to level the building out, to make it right, to set its foundations better. Um, it's interesting. The reason it was leaning is because the soil that it was built upon was actually sandy and marshy. It was a sandy, marshy soil. They, um, they had thought originally, they, they, they did put in a foundation thinking that that would be significant enough, but the soil composition was far worse than they had expected, so it continued to lean and lean and lean. And so many attempts were made over the years to try to make it right. They, they, they ended up making some stories actually taller than other stories on one side to kind of try to correct the lean. All kinds of different things. They, they, they tried to change the soil underneath which I'm, I'm a little bit thankful those were unsuccessful because I don't know what we would call it today if it no longer leaned. Would we just call it the, 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 the Tower of Pisa? Because no one knows what that would be. Um, or would it be the, the tower that formerly leaned? The tower formerly known as the Leaning Tower. That's what we would call it because Minnesota. Um, yeah, what exactly would it be called? So, so it was actually falling. So, so, so the Tower of Pisa was actually falling then at a rate of about two millimeters a year. So not, not very quickly, but still definitely falling. Some significant work was done in the 90s to help right it as much as possible. It is still leaning today. Um, it's not leaning nearly as much as it used to lean. And, uh, and they are fairly confident that it should be decently stable for at least the next 800-ish years. So if you haven't seen the lean yet, don't worry, it's not going to fall today, probably. You still have about 800 years to make it to the leaning tower. Now, most of us, I think, recognize intuitively 
that when we build something, it needs to have a strong foundation, right? I mean, even if I take my kids to the beach and we build a sandcastle, they already, even, a, even when they were young, knew intuitively that you had to have a strong foundation on it. So they would try to pack the sand as tightly as possible. They would try to do everything they could to make it as solid of a tower as possible, right? That, that just seems intuitive. That seems obvious to most of us. And yet in our passage this morning, Jesus will argue that although we generally recognize that for buildings, there's still, <laughs> there's still significant gaps in our lives. Though we recognize that truth for architecture, we don't always recognize that truth to be true in Christian living. This morning, we're beginning a very short series through the month of August called Back to School, Lessons for Life. As we work our way through this series, we're going to focus on fundamentals, fundamentals of what it means to be a follower of Christ and to be, and to be one of his disciples. As we enter into the fall, which for many of us is a very busy season, potentially doing new things, potentially getting back to, to, getting back to school, maybe new life transitions, things like that, it's a time to shore up and to remember, okay, here's the fundamentals of what this means to be a follower of Christ during this season. And so this morning we'll be looking at the first the first sermon in that series, the first principle, the first key priority for the Christian life. So this morning specifically, we'll look at what it means to live life on the rock. We're going to look at what it means to live life on the rock. Our passage this morning comes out of Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Again, that's Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. And I'll read our passage. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning and for this time that we have to be in your word, Lord, to hear you speak, to be able to meditate upon all that you, um, all that you are doing, all that you have accomplished and continue to work out. God, you are good. We thank you for this, Lord. I pray that you would open our ears so that we can hear, and not just to hear, but to do the things that are in your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts in such a way, applying these words, God, that they would be transformative for us. Lord, I pray that you would oversee my words, Lord, as, we, as I attempt to communicate your word this morning, Lord, that my words would be forgotten, but that your word would remain strong and rich in our lives. Father, you are good. Please use this all for your glory and for your honor. I pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So as we look at our passage this morning, this comes again at the end of, of chapter 7, verses, verses 24 to 27. 
Our passage is actually at the end of Jesus' most famous sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, which began back in chapter 5 with, with the Beatitudes, which many of you are probably familiar with. So his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting because it begins with something like the Beatitudes, which is, our, which is almost a turning upside down of the expectations of the world and expectations of what true blessing looks like. It continues, it continues on by looking at things like, like what it means to genuinely fulfill the law and genuinely fulfill God's expectations for us. It looks at things like spiritual disciplines and what it means to do it rightly, and then it spends some time looking at what genuine community looks like. And all of these things, all of these things are summarizing what it means to live life in the kingdom. Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel. He is the long-awaited one, the one who, who God had promised for so, many, for so many hundreds and hundreds of years that was going to come and that was going to set things aright. He was the one that they had all been waiting for, the one who would reign, who would be their good king, who would bring restoration, who would bring blessing to the people. And they were excited because the disciples saw and they recognized. They had a slow-growing awareness, but they still recognized that he was the long-awaited king. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been at pains to describe what kingdom life looks like. Kingdom life isn't just about giving it isn't just about giving lip service to a king, but it's about actually following that king. It's about following him. And so here we've had this, uh, we've had this, um, this kind of laid out for us. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount then begins with a final three parables to describe what it looks like then for the disciples to respond to their king. What should the disciples' response be to the king? The last of these is the one that we're meditating on this morning. Jesus begins, Jesus begins in a bit of a startling way. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. Now, it wouldn't have been very surprising if Jesus had said something along the lines of everyone who hears the law or everyone who hears the scriptures or everyone who hears God's word will be like a wise man. That, that wouldn't have been very surprising, but that's not what Jesus says. Rather, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. So even at the outset, Jesus is laying out an expectation that he is an authority. He, again, as we said, he is the long-awaited king, the Messiah, the Christ who is expected to come. He has arrived and there's a right response to him because of his authority. When Jesus said these things, <clears throat> or sorry, these words, he's probably referring back to his sermon, but most specifically the Sermon on the Mount, but probably applies even more broadly to all of Jesus' teachings. All of Jesus' teachings. All of them are authoritative for his disciples. And then Jesus proceeds to give two different options a wise option and a foolish one. One that will lead to blessing, one that will lead to blessing, the blessings, the sort of blessings that we see at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitude, and one that will leave you empty and bankrupt, right? These are the two ways that we see laid out before us. 
the wise, the wise in this, partic- in this parable is the one who builds their house on the rock. The one who builds his house on the rock. Now, this wouldn't have been surprising in ancient Israel. This wouldn't have been surprising, especially, especially in the area of Galilee. The sand, the, the soil was quite sandy. It wasn't good soil for building in. People knew it. So when they dug, when they, when they built buildings, they would have to dig down to a rocky foundation in order to create a solid structure. This was obvious. This was apparent to Jesus' listeners. And on top of that, the, the, rain, the area was actually typically quite arid. However, in the rainy season, which really reaches its peak around January, the rainy season would bring torrential flooding to the area. Um, just to give you an idea, um, London and Jerusalem receive generally the same amount of annual rainfall. They receive about the same amount. They both receive about 22 inches annually. Okay? But the difference between the two is that London boasts 300 days of rain a year. 300 days of rain. I'm not even exaggerating. Um, 300 days of rain a year. Whereas Jerusalem has about 50. Only has about 50 days of rain a year. So that Jerusalem receives the same amount of rain in a fraction of the time of London. So when it does come, when the heavens do open up, and when the rain does pour, it pours down heavily and in huge amounts, consequently washing away the sandy, the, the sand that's below buildings. So if those buildings aren't built correctly, if they don't have a solid foundation that's founded upon the rock under the sand, then it'll be washed away from under the structure and the structure will fall. Now again, this was obvious to Jesus' listeners. They would have been sitting here listening to the description of what the wise man did by building upon the foundation of the rock, and they would say, Psh, that's wisdom? That's, that, that's obvious, Jesus. Come on, everyone does that. Everyone knows that much. Even my, my children, they know that you need a, rock, a rocky foundation here. And then they would have heard the description of the fool, and they would have thought, What? Like, what's wrong with them? Why, why would they do that? And it, it would have almost been laughable. The rocky foundation here obviously has a deeper meaning, though. The rocky foundation here describes Jesus' teachings. Jesus' teachings that he had just spoken about in verse 24. Jesus' teachings are the solid foundation. And to build your house on, the, on this foundation as Jesus described in verse 24, is both to hear and to do Jesus' teachings. To build your house is both the hearing and the doing. It's practicing. It's showing obedience to Christ. This is the expectation for Jesus' people, for his disciples. They aren't just to claim devotion to him, They're supposed to actually follow in all of his teachings. The foolish, on the other hand, in verse 26, are those who hear Jesus' words, but then they don't practice them. They, they, They don't put them to work. They don't apply them. Instead, they build their lives on the sand. They build their lives on other things, on other things that will ultimately won't prove to be a solid foundation. They build their lives on things like money 
and security or popularity or physical health or technology or food or their families or all these other things. Some of them even good things, but things that ultimately aren't meant to be the foundation in your life so that we build up these superstructures on a flimsy foundation and then we're shocked when they collapse in on themselves. It's always a good question for us to be wrestling with, right? What are our lives genuinely being built upon? What are we spending our time focusing on? What are we meditating on? Where, where are our hearts fixated? What brings us the most worry in life? I find oftentimes you can quickly identify the idols in your life by those things that bring you the most worry and the most concern. Are we really building our lives upon the solid foundation of Jesus' teaching in God's word? Or are we building lives on sand, on the, on the shaky foundation of sand, just building up our sand castles? There is something so much stronger that we can build our lives upon, that we are called to build our lives upon. But what does this look like? What does it look like to build our lives on, on, on a solid foundation? What would this house look like? So one of the interesting things as I spend time meditating on this passage, <clears throat> one of the interesting things to me is that both the wise and the foolish are building houses. Everyone's building houses, apparently. It's a really common, popular thing to do. Everyone builds houses. Um, everyone's building these houses. And notice what it doesn't say about these houses. What it doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say that the wise person, his house was really well constructed. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that this house obviously stood out because the architecture was amazing, and it was beautiful, and it was clearly stronger. And then, and then he doesn't look at the wise house and say, well, it's dilapidated and it's poorly designed and clearly, clearly it's going to fall. Jesus doesn't say that. Actually, there's actually, a, there's actually no marked differences between the two houses in Jesus' description. The two might as well look exactly the same and have the exact same construction. Again, the difference between the two houses isn't the structure of the house itself. The difference between the two houses is the foundation that it's built on. It's the rock versus the sand. All throughout Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's been calling people not only to listen to him, but to be genuine followers of him, to practice his teachings, to practice God's will, which, fine, that seems obvious enough. We've already talked about that. However, it's interesting, as you go back through Sermon on the Mount, you get to things like chapter 6, you get to things like chapter 6, and all of a sudden, you see Jesus rebuking people for giving financially. And you see people, you see Jesus rebuking people for things like praying. And you see people, you see Jesus rebuking people for things like fasting, which I know all of you are like, whew, good, they got rebuked for fasting, so I'm off the hook. There's no need to fast. I don't need to worry about that. I can just kind of, just kind of ignore that thing, right? Well, no, no, Jesus still clearly calls us to give. He clearly calls us to, to pray. He clearly calls us to fast. Yes, I'm sorry, we are called to fast. The difference that he makes is that there's a right way to do these things, 
There's a right way and there's a wrong way. The wrong way is the way that he describes as being hypocritical. It's the way that's associated with the Pharisees. It's interesting, um, hi- hypocrite, actually, actually that word comes directly from the Greek, um, uh, hypocrites, um, which is an ancient word. So e- even in ancient Greek, prior to biblical Greek, that word was used, interestingly, for acting, for acting. Because the concept was is you pretend to be this persona, you pretend, pretend to be this character, but you're really not. You're really something else. And then that word gets u- utilized uh, as Greek continues to, uh, to progress. That word ends up getting used as a negative thing for those who act one way, but again, aren't really that way. Of course, we see that over and over again in Jesus' teachings about the Pharisees. So it's not that it's wrong to pray or to give or to fast. The thing that's wrong is when we don't do it from a sincere heart. It's not enough to just do the things. It's not enough to simply do the things. There needs to be an alignment between our external actions and what's genuinely going on in our hearts. I just had my anniversary recently. Uh, my wife and I, we, got, we celebrate our 18th anniversary. So we went out on a date. Um, so if, if I had taken her out, if I had taken her out and she, she, she talked about how much she enjoyed it and how excited she was to go on a date, and my response was simply, well, I mean, it's our anniversary. I, I have to take you out. It's my duty. It's my responsibility. I mean, it's just it's what I've got to do, so whatever. I think I'd be in a lot of trouble. I mean, that was like two weeks ago. I'd still be in a lot of trouble, right? And understandably so. Because even though my actions might have been good, even, if, even though I did the right things by taking her out and whatever else, if my heart doesn't actually align with those actions, then it's not going to bring any joy and delight to my wife. We're called to align those two things. Our external actions should align with internally what's going on in our hearts. In other words, there are some of us who have nailed the look. We've nailed the look. We look at the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're like, yes, I'm supposed to do this, and 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 okay, I'm keeping it up pretty well. Like I look like I'm playing the role well. We know how to look the part, and we generally do the right things. But Jesus is challenging here. Jesus is challenging that we aren't merely supposed to look the part. We're not supposed to merely look the part. It's supposed to actually come from our hearts. There's sincerity that we're supposed to have as we go through, as we live lives of devotion to God. So even things like Sunday morning, why are you here this morning? Are you here because you want to hear God's word? Is it, are you here because you want to draw near to him, to worship him, to enjoy him, to delight in him? Or are you here because it's Sunday morning and that's just my habit? Which is it? Which truly defines you? Which are you building your house on? Are you genuinely building the house that Jesus describes he wants from us? Or are you actually building a house on sand? He wants you to practice his teachings, and that doesn't mean just doing the good things. It means that there needs to be an alignment between our motivation 
and our actual practice. Jesus gives us this, Jesus even provides a sobering warning for us in chapter seven in the paragraph immediately before. Um, I, I remember the first time I read this passage, I was in high school. I wasn't a believer at the time. I, uh, so someone read it to me. I was in high school and it shook me. Because here it describes that on the last day, there will be people standing before the Lord who he judges, who he condemns. And these people will cry out and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we, didn't we minister? Didn't we do good things? Didn't we show, didn't we do all the right things? And he'll say to them, get away from me. I never knew you. It's not about just doing the right things. It's too easy to fall into that trap, that Phariseeism. There needs to be an alignment between our internal and our external, between what we're doing and what's actually going on in our hearts. So it's interesting then. So as we look upon someone, as we look upon these two houses, we might not see any difference at all. We might not see any difference between the wise house and the foolish house. So how do we know? How do we know what their genuine foundation is? How do we know whether or not the house has truly been built on the rock or on the sand? Jesus gives us a clue. He talks about the storms. I think this is a really, I think this is really interesting. So we see here the wise and the fool in contrast. And I think most of us would assume that the wise house, the person who's building the wise house, that he would build this house and good things would just begin to happen, right? You, you have this wise person building this house and so, and so the, the dark clouds would blow away, the sun would come out, um, the birds would sing. Uh, obviously there'd be a really nice green yard, maybe a white picket fence as well. Um, I, I think most of us assume that that's what would happen when you have this wise house. And then, and then again, you have the contrast of the foolish house. And well, yeah, of course, there's going to be dark clouds that would roll in and things wouldn't go well for them and all of that. But the good house, everything's going to be gravy. Everything's going to be good. But that's not what we see happen in this passage. It's interesting to look at both verses 25 and 27 because we see that the wise house and the foolish house experience the exact same thing. Verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. Verse 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. Almost exactly, word for word, the same thing. That's amazing. I don't think that's typically what we expect. The experience of the wise person is the same experience as the fool. So that like what we already saw, we can't judge the house by how it looks. It's not until the storms of life come, the hardship and the trials, that we begin to see what the foundation genuinely was. It's not till in the midst of hardship that we begin to see what that life, what that building was genuinely built upon. Is it, is it built on rock? Is it able to continue to stand even in the midst of that? Or is it sandy soil that quickly erodes under the torrential downfall of the rain and the beating of the wind? Which is it? We don't genuinely know until one is left standing 
and one is left crumbling. Trials and hardships come upon us all, both the wise and the fool. The thing that separates us then is not, is not the reality of those things that come upon us. The thing that separates us is how we respond in the midst of them. Do we respond in faith or do we respond by forgetting God, by ignoring him, maybe by shaking our fist at him, by saying, I don't want to have anything to do with that. To respond in faith is to respond by saying, I'll continue to walk in obedience. I'll continue to follow you even through the storm. I'll continue to follow you even though the path is hard, even though things haven't been easy, even though life has gone against me, I will continue and I will trust because I know that you're good. Even though you are over all of this, and I know that you can change any of it because you are sovereign and because you are almighty. I will trust you even in the midst of this. That house has a foundation of rock. The life that continues to walk in obedience and trust of an all-sovereign God. So then notice one house stands while the other falls and great was the fall. But why? Why is this one house able to stand? Why is this house able to walk in obedience? Why is this house able to trust even in the midst of this? Well, the reason is, is because the foundation continues to uphold it. It's so easy to look at those buildings in the midst of the storm and to assume that that house must be so strong. The frame, the structure, everything about that house must be incredible. But that's not Jesus' parable here. Jesus' parable is that both houses are equally weak. Both houses are equally strong. There's nothing different about the house. The difference is the foundation. I'm reminded of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, or be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. That's the secret. The secret isn't in the strength of the framing, of the strength of the structure. The secret of the strength is in the foundation and the righteous, omnipotent hand that continues to hold the building up. So our passage then is calling us to cling to a solid foundation of God's word, not with any kind of cheap, paltry obedience that only gives lip service to his commands, but to live lives of genuine obedience, of joyful delight before our king, True obedience, lives that, lives that give testimony that we follow a good and mighty king. A good and mighty king while recognizing that we are upheld by his righteous, omnipotent hand. And this, this is in marked contrast to the world that we live in, isn't it? 
to live this sort of life of delightful obedience, of excited, gleeful obedience to a king that we know is good. A king that has called us to give up everything else, all the joys and delights of this life, and to make him our foundation before anything else. And this is beautiful. And that's not how the world looks at it. As soon as we talk about submission in the world, it brings to mind only negative things, only hard things. We live in a world that doesn't want to submit to anything, that doesn't want to be accountable, that doesn't want anything to reign over them, that wants to be able to do whatever they want, when they want, to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. But Jesus has given us a different course. Jesus has given us a different picture of what it means to be his disciples. And it means following him, delightfully following him, enjoying our good and mighty king because there is no greater thing. There is nothing sweeter than to live a life of obedience to our king. Does this, does this characterize your life? As we, again, as we enter into the falls, we enter into a busier life, busier things, things that could quickly deter us, things that could quickly distract us. Does this characterize who you are going into the fall? Are you living a life of obedience, true obedience to Christ? Are you his disciple? Or are you just going through the motions? Or maybe, maybe you're not even going through the motions. Maybe you've even given up on that. There are storms coming. There are storms coming for each and every one of us. And each of us should continue to examine his life. And if we're honest, if we're honest, I think all of us should be able to, as we examine our lives, be able to find areas where we've begun. We've begun to, to build an extension, expansion on our house over sand. We all have areas that we need to repent of. But the good news is we have a mighty king. We have a mighty king that we can go to for forgiveness. We have a mighty king who delights to replace the sand under our house with a firm and solid rock. We have a mighty king who has already laid out the course for us through his death and his resurrection, who has already paved a way so that all we have to do is turn to him. Turn to Jesus. He longs to give you a foundation of rock. There is no greater thing. So then, closing question, are you building your house on his solid rock or are you wasting your time in the sand? Because there is something that is so much better for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you... Thank you for your son who has paved a way for us, Lord, that we can have a house built on a solid foundation of him and of your word. Lord, I pray that you would continue just to work powerfully in our lives, God, to bring us into conformity, Lord, to, to, to bring our, our actions and our hearts into alignment with one another, to make us a people who are genuinely obedient to you, living lives of gleeful obedience before you. Father, you are good.
We thank you so much for this this morning. Please, please, we come to you to continue to work powerfully. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes out of the book of Jude. Please stand. Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and have a good Sunday. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.